0: or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you gotta do is head on over to u-turnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest.
1: A friend of mine who runs an $80 million a year retail store, he's got nine locations, really nice man. He shared this with me. He says, David, I call it can't do, won't do, don't know how. So if I'm a new manager, and someone I'm having trouble with. Let's say, you know, Joe won't do X. Great, is it because he can't do it? Like he's not capable of it. He won't do it, he's not willing to, it's an attitude issue, or he just doesn't know how, it's a training issue. Now what I've learned is when I've identified the problem as a can't do, then I have to ask, do we have a better role or for them to play? Otherwise, they're, they're probably not right for that that slot. Hmm. If it's a won't do, I have a one serious heart-to-heart adult conversation. If it's still a won't-do, then they're gone. Why? Because I can't have the cancer of the attitude in the company. If it's a don't-know-how, and many times it really is just a don't-know-how, then I have to go back and say, well, how do I support this person with the right training, the right mentoring, the right coaching to help them be successful?
0: What's up U-Turners? I've got a treat for you today. We are in the work category. I know all of you are probably in traffic or you got your notepad out and you are listening. And I'm so excited to share David Finkel with you. He's a business owner. He's built and sold many companies. He's a Wall Street Journal best-selling author. He's written 11 books, the most recent one being the Freedom Formula, and he coaches business leaders on all things success. And I wanted to ask him today about how you can start working smarter. A lot of that has to do with productivity, creating structure, creating boundaries. I know that we live in a world right now where it feels like our careers are running us and we are not running our careers. Um, and so I think David has five points that we're going to cover about yourself, your email, your meetings, people, and the future in general, uh, which I'm so excited about. So David, thank you so much for being here.
1: Ashley, a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our conversation here.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've got some really good topics and it's so weird because I was looking, I was thinking about our conversation before we started recording and I was like, why haven't I talked more about like working smarter? Like that just feels like such a needed topic and creepily obvious. Like how have I not? So talk to me, like what got you interested in business and success?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. So, yeah, I started off as once upon a time an athlete. That was a long time ago, 25 years ago. I was training to play in the Olympics and I got hurt. I I grew a tumor in my hip and was sitting there recovering, figuring out what do I want to do next? What do I want to do next? And for about 10 years, I built my first series of companies and I sold them, but I, I did it on the effort of, you know, like I did sports. I just ground it out. I mean, I worked, 80, 90 hour weeks, I was on the road two, two and a half weeks out of every month and what it really struck me was I had built based off of an unsustainable way of doing that and I I wanted to get married, I wanted to have kids and I still remember the thing, the day that everything really changed for me, I was in the delivery room, um, my first two boys, Matthew, I have three sons Matthew and Adam were born, they're 10 now and they, When I held them in my arms, it it was no longer an option that I was going to be getting on planes like that. It just it just went right out the window. I didn't know what to expect. I I, I just, you know, every parent remembers that moment of holding their first child and being overwhelmed. And I I started approaching my business very differently. I said, well, imagine I'm an astronaut and I have a certain amount of consumables of oxygen and fuel and uh, food and and so forth. So for me, I I had three variables. I said, I'm no longer willing to do certain things. So I have a certain amount of hours per week. That was my first consumable. Second was travel days. Uh, I, I set a hard stop for the work. I said, I'm going to get all this stuff done. And I'm going to do it in 40 hours or less across the different businesses that I participated in. And I'm going to make sure that I do no more than three travel days per month. Turns out now I'm probably down to about three and a half travel days per quarter without my family. I cheat sometimes by taking them all with me, but that's that's still fun. And then I made sure that I take real vacation. And I set a goal that for me at the time seemed audacious. I said 10 weeks of real vacation every year, not just working remotely from a pretty location. Mm. And so now it required me to do things differently. So I started experimenting how I ran my day. Mm. How did I structure my quarter, my week, my day? Um, How did I leverage the people on my internal team? How did I start sharing these ideas that were working for me with them? And then for the last 10 years I've been experimenting with our business coaching clients and mm. so and their staffs. Mm. And so we're talking several thousand people have tried the ideas and we found lots of things that worked for some people but there were just these consistent things that worked for pretty much everybody and mm. that's really why when I wrote the freedom formula I wanted to narrow it down to those those best practices that help people move away from just being out there in the time and effort economy by you know I, I, the only way I create Value is by working hard to how do I actually operationalize working smarter? And I know it's a cliche. Everyone says, oh, work smart, not hard. But what's not so obvious is how do you do that in the face of all the conflicting demands? You know, bosses that change their mind every three seconds, um, customers that really want things just the way they want them immediately, mm-hmm. and coworkers who need you. You know, you've got a, a thousand emails coming in every week. And when you're done with that, you've got an app feed, whether it be Slack or whatever you know, channels you're using for instant message, WhatsApp, or however you're doing it at work, you're just overwhelmed. So how do you keep yourself thinking about creating value in the face of all of that? And, and that's kind of been my journey the last 10 years.
0: Gosh, and what a necessary topic to be exploring because I think that in a world where there are so many meetings, there's so much data, I'm sure you're more than aware of it around how meetings aren't productive, how they're not creating time for people to actually do the work they were hired to do and how turnover is such one of the biggest challenges businesses face. So if if we could just get someone a quick win and they didn't listen to this the rest of this episode, which I know that they will once they get this quick win, I'm sure, but what are a couple quick wins that you're like just just think about this one thing and it's going to change your productivity?
1: so i'll give you an easy one i call it my my buffet theory of time management i mean everyone knows that i should be focusing on the things that matters but it's hard Mm -hmm. and what happens is our most valuable stuff gets the remnant time gets the five minutes here 15 minutes there and these little slivers i can just do one thing different and so think about a buffet i i like eating Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i like buffets
0: me and you both
1: (laughs) that's right so i've learned that the most important plate of food at a buffet is your first plate if i go straight to the dessert tray I'll eat more calories that are junk and empty stuff. But if my first plate of food is really nutritious, I've got some of the the vegetables and some high-quality proteins, then I can fill the rest of my business day with all the other low-calorie junk. And still I've gotten what I needed, and I've partly filled my stomach. So I I think about the week. And so every week I just focus. I pick one day of the week that I'm going to give myself a two- to four-hour block. I'll call this a focus day, although all I'm doing is I'm blocking off just a two- a four-hour block, depending what it is. I I can do that once in an entire week. So let's say on Tuesday from 9 o'clock in the morning till 1130, I give myself a a a two-and-a-half-hour block. What I've just done there is I've given myself a chunk to do my highest value work. And the key is I can't fill that first plate that time with junk calories, empty calories at work. I've got to do stuff that matters, which usually means I've got to turn off email for a two-hour period. I've got to turn off my apps. I've got to communicate with my staff. Um, so that we can cover for each other. Maybe we we stagger it so that that I can have a focus time that. And then on the other days, we call those push days. So my focus day, I get a two to four hour block and it's a recurring appointment on my calendar during which I do my highest value work. We can come back to that in a moment to figure out what that is. And then on my push days, I'm just moving things forward one more step. I'm doing the job of my job. Hmm. And on those push days, I give myself, if I can, ideally on the other four, but even if I can only do it for two or three of them, I get myself a one-hour focus block on those push days. So all I've done out of my 40, 50, 60-hour week, and I'm assuming that some of your u tuners are probably working more than that, but let's hope not. At least we'll get them back to a, a more sane schedule. But, but all I've really changed is how I've worked four, five, or six of those hours out of the entire week. The rest of the calendar is still there to fill with whatever I need to. But in this, you think about it, if I had even just five hours a week, that I had in blocks of one-hour to two, two two-and-a-half-hour chunks, I could create enough value in what I do, if I could use that to focus on my highest value projects, priorities, activities, that in that five-hour chunk, over the course of a year, that's about six weeks of extra full-time work doing things that right now are getting crowded out. Mm. And that's how we create value independent of the time we work, because we we don't... We don't just change what we focus on, we change the quality of the time we give to our best activities. And I've gotta put it in as a recurring calendar. I I met one of my coaching clients at an event I was at. He was telling me he was struggling with it. I said, give me your phone. And he said, what do you mean? I said, let me look at your phone. And I looked at his phone, I said, I don't see focus time in here scheduled as a recurring appointment. Whether I use Google uh, Calendar or whether I use Outlook or whatever program I use, it should be a recurring appointment again, I'm only blocking off five to six hours a week out of my entire week. But when I do it that way, and if I'm successful, even 80, 90% of the time to do that, it really will change your life.
0: Mm, And what do you put in that focus time? Because I know there's so like, everybody feels like their whole job should be focused time. You know what I mean? Like, how do you make that decision of what deserves to be there?
1: That's a great question. So I'm going to come at it three ways if I can. And so the first way is, you know, everyone's heard of this 80-20 rule, Prado's principle, and it says 80% of what you do creates 20% of the result. Very low value stuff. That's me just responding to an email. It's me doing uh, sorting my desk, low value stuff. We call that D time. uh, C time is that 20% that creates the other 80% of the value. But if you take that same Prado's principle and you take it to its most productive extreme. You say, okay, if 20% of what I do gives me 80% of the result, then 20% of the 20% gives me 80% of the 80%. And here's the math. It's that 4% sweet spot that gives you 64% of the result. Now, the math doesn't matter. It's, it's more of a, a generalization. And you can do that one more time. You know, 20% of that 20% of the 20%, that, that magic 1% that creates half the value if you play the math through, and so here's an example. So let's say that I, I do hourly work, and I'm, I'm working consulting, and I'm getting paid, you know, uh, $200 per hour for consulting work is what my company bills my time at. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So non-billable versus billable time. My non-billable time, I think, usually is my D activity, mm-hmm. and most people think that their highest-paid activity is doing that billable work, but it's not. That billable work is C time. What's higher value? Be things like you know, going out there and finding new clients from that part, or creating a, a system that might allow you as a company to have seven of your of you and your your peers that are all consultants coordinate your work to get a better result for a client with less dropped effort. So what we have to ask is, what do I really do that creates the most value? And if I'm not sure, I talk to my boss and I and I say to her, I say, Hey, you know, Cheryl, you know, I, I know that I'm here. For example, let's say I'm her assistant. Cheryl, of all the things that I do for you what are the two or three things that I do that create the most value for you? Um, If I'm a VP of sales, I ask my, you know, my boss, or I think to myself of all the things I could do, what do I do that create the most value? And so if I'm the assistant, my boss might say, you know, what you really do that creates the most value for me is for all my meetings. When I step into that room and you hand me the folder that has everything printed just right for me so that I don't have to think about, do I have the materials for the meeting? When you do that, it saves me half an hour a day of prep time for meetings, and it's perfect. Mm. Or if I'm a VP of sales, maybe what I do that creates the most value is it's the one-to-one time I spend coaching my sales team members so that they are selling more effectively. Everyone has something they do for their business. There's two, three, four activities that hands down create more value than the other things. And the problem is, is that most of us let that stuff get crowded into the small slivers of remnant time. So that's one way.
0: So it's like really starting. To, I love this idea of investigating and asking the people around you where you're providing value because it takes you out of making assumptions, which is so po- powerful for your career. Like, good to know. Um, feedback yeah. is such and, a big
1: thing. think if they're managing somebody else. So, if any of you U turners are managing somebody else, do they know what you think the highest value is? And, and rather than me just saying, hey, you know, um, Cindy, the most valuable thing you do is this, instead, let's ask her, hey, Cindy. When you look at your role, what do you what do you think you do that creates the most value for the company? Mm. And it's really interesting to see how you've communicated as her boss, what she thinks is value. Have you communicated accurately? Could you help coach her to, to see where she is in terms of where she's off and where she's accurate so that she can now know how can she be more successful? Because we all know that if we focus some of our best time on those fewer, better things that make a bigger difference, Of course, we're going to get a better result for the same unit of time.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, I know that kind of like leading into creating structure, one of the biggest things you talk about as it relates to this really is managing yourself. And that just feels like when I read that, I'm like, whoa, there's so much to manage. There's your inner world, your outer world. Like, Where does somebody start when it comes to managing themselves so they can start working smarter?
1: yeah well, I'll give you an idea from the Freedom formulas. This comes if someone's reading the book that's uh, chapter three. Um, right. the fewer better. but so, I don't know how many u-turners are out there that to do list. i'm I'm guessing that like, I'm a paper person. So if you were to look at my to- do list, it it's more than one list. It goes on for pages, and if I'm a digital person, it's multiple um, finger flicks up. Are you a paper person, Ashley, or are you a, are you a, uh, you know, kind of more of a digital? It's on your phone.
0: No, I'm a paper person. I literally have a handwritten calendar next to me, and I crossed off your name as I was skyping you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So great. So you know this experience, right? You look at that to-do list, and and that to-do list has, you know, more than you could ever possibly get done. But everything is on there, and it feels overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus, what happens is it's like a needle in a haystack. The most valuable stuff shows on that list just the same as the task, like pick up dry cleaning. Mm-hmm. So what, I, what I'll i work with somebody and I'll tell them and say, look, at the beginning of the week, I want you to think through what's the one or two big rocks for the week, the, the one or two items that take less than two hours or less to do. If it takes more than that, break into a smaller chunk because rarely will we get more than two hours of focus time in one go. Almost never will that happen. And And I write them down clearly. And what I'm doing is I'm pulling my most important activities off of my to-do list and putting them visually separate on this big rock report. In the book, it shows a graphic layout for it. But even if I just write it at the top of my list, my to-do list, and put a vertical line underneath it, that in this week, of all the things I can do, I've got 73 things I'm going to try to do. But these two, these big rocks are non-negotiable. I'm absolutely going to get these things done and done well. And what I've done is i picked my A or B, my top value, my my 1% or my 4% activities at the beginning of the week, and I've labeled them in a way that visually they jump out. And, And because we're not just a work person, we're a whole person. Personally, I do this for my personal life and for my business life. So if you were to look at this week for my business life, there's an event we're doing in Hawaii coming up in four weeks. And so for me, I have some content that I still need to prepare for. That's one of them. And then two um, we're having a new hire coming on in our sales team, and so preparing for her on board. Those are my two business big rocks. On the personal side, my big rocks almost always revolve around one of three things, right? For me, it's self-care, exercise, meditation, um, you know, eating well, um, relational care, like spending time with my wife, taking her on a date. You know, We've got young kids, and any of your parents out there know it's hard to get couple time. I mean, everything seems to revolve around our three kids. And then i i want to also make sure i'm doing stuff with my my sons i i mean i I just counted it up i get 144 more months before my two oldest sons go off to whatever comes next and they graduate it just seems when i put it that way it just flipped me out a little bit
0: yeah no kidding
1: so i i I put them on a separate list i still have a to-do list but at the top of the to-do list visually marked out are the one or two big rocks for the week when i look at it that way my week feels more manageable I'm not so scared because my to-do list is impossible. I say to myself, I'm going to get these big rocks done, and that gives me most of the value, and everything else that I do is gravy. I'm going to get a lot of the other stuff done, but even if I don't finish the whole list, I still got the most valuable stuff done.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. And sometimes I kind of approach it differently. Like I think a lot of people do where I get the easy stuff done. Cause I just want to feel like I'm crossing things off of my list. Would sure. you say that's one of the biggest pitfalls or do you think there's something to that momentum of like crossing things off?
1: Yeah. I, I actually personally think that crossing things off gives us a micro jolt of pleasure mm-hmm. and that's dangerous. Why? Cause we cross off the wrong things and the things that we leave behind are those things that actually create value in our professional career. Mm. Um, So what I tend to do is I I just say on the big stuff, and I I learned this back when I was playing sport, the hardest thing for me to do is to get myself to show up on the field. So if I can just get myself to the gym, or in this case, if I can just get myself started on one of those tougher things and just get going, generally speaking, I'm going to finish it if I get started on it. So I don't mind using the small stuff as as a pleasurable reward, but I try not to just go straight there. Because once I go there, and for me it's things like, oh, my inbox, because I see all this stuff. The curiosity that drives my behavior, and I love to be hyper responsive. But the moment I do that, I kill my day. I mm-hmm. almost never do anything but tread water. If I'm, if I am, if if I'm in my inbox, the very first thing in the morning, and it's so tempting. I, I, I look for most people. They're they're in their inbox before they even get out of bed. The first thing, their head lifts from the pillow, they turn to the side of their, their bedside table and they pull up their phone and they're looking at their email before they even get out of bed. What I've learned is, if I can give myself the first hour of the day, and I can't always do it, but I can at least two or three days a week, an hour to start the day doing something that creates value, if I'm in my inbox first thing, invariably all I'm doing is checking off tasks, I really am just treading water, I'm staying still. I'm not getting ahead. I'm not really creating value for my company and my career. Value comes when I get blocks of my best attention to the things that matter most. Mm. And 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 email is almost never the thing that matters most.
0: Wow. I love that. And I know that, you know, this, this concept of starting your day, reacting to other people's priorities through email. And that kind of leads us into that other point where we were talking about managing yourself and also managing your email. So, I know there's got to be a slew of best practices and I'm ready for all of them, especially because I'm the kind of person as a creative where I do my best work when I'm not, um, not on my email, not on my phone. Like I'm just walking around talking to somebody. That's when I'm having my best ideas. So what are some thoughts you have as far as boundaries around that kind of stuff goes?
1: (laughs) I love it. Chapter two in the freedom formula. And so here's a couple, I'll give you six real quick. Number one, Email's addictive. So if I go there first, I'm going to stay there all day. I've got to get my focus time before I go to email. Then I can give myself the reward of that fix. Number two, um, the faster I respond to an email, the more of it I get. So age my email. Now, I, aging doesn't mean aging it for weeks, but sometimes I might hit reply, but I'll send it as a delayed delivery so the person gets sent the next day. Because we've all had a moments where I almost start using email like an instant messenger where we're both just having this chat back and forth, and it's an absolute waste of time. So age my email. I can't age my boss's email necessarily, but I can age sometimes a a vendor or a client or even a coworker where I'm giving them an answer, but normally where I might've responded in 30 minutes, I I, I wait even an hour. Mm. Sometimes just delaying a little bit, what it does is it reduces by a significant amount the email I get. Third, I make it easy for my recipient, and then I expect them to make it easy for me. And so here's a couple of things we do internally in our company. So we use our subject lines very different than how most people do it. Most people don't do a very robust subject line. So we first of all use one, two, or three in our messages internally. And a one means this is urgent, important. You have to take action. Go right here first. If every email turns into being that, um, I need to have a conversation with that team member. But once... Twice a month, maybe there's a one that truly is a one. A two says, hey, you're going to have to do something with this email. There's an action you have to take. Deal with it in a reasonable time frame. And a three is FYI only. And so here's what it looks like. I send an email earlier today to our our CEO. Her name's Teresa Watson. And I sent it to Kim, who runs our marketing. Well, it was something Teresa had to do and something Kim had to know. So I put it down as two, Teresa, semicolon, three, Kim colon. And then I put the subject of the email. What it does is when Kim looks at her inbox, she knows that she doesn't have to do anything with that immediately. She just needs to be aware of it as an FYI. Mm. And so it takes me about an extra 15 seconds now to, to put that in my subject line. But what it does is it makes so much easier for everyone else when I'm sending them email. Mm -hmm. And here's the third tip. I look at the people I send my email to and I find the five people I send it most to, and almost always those are internal team members, coworkers, bosses, subordinates. And I ask them, I say, hey, what about how I send you email makes your life better? And how is it that I send you email that makes your life harder? And some people will say things like, oh, you CC me on too much. Or I really wish you would CC me on this. Or don't CC me, BCC me so that when people hit reply all, I don't stay with the thread. Or whatever that might be. Or you write these long emails. I just want the bottom line. Or, hey, you give me these cryptic short emails. I need more details. And once you're done listening to them and you say, okay, so what you're asking me to do is X and Y and Z. I can do that. Then you say, would you like to know what I would ask from you to make it easier for me? Mm -hmm. And what you've done is you just had an adult conversation, which is funny because I've coached thousands of business people Almost no one has this conversation, even though most of us are spending two hours or more a day in our inbox. Crazy. But we don't have the conversation like adults about what do we do to make things better. And you can't personalize every email for a hundred people, but probably 60% of your email comes from and goes to six people, uh, probably five people um, that you, you do the most with. So you can play the odds and, and get cleaner on that. So that's a, a third one. Are we we're doing good on that you want a few more you t- yeah you tell no, me please actually?
0: tell me i love these these are so helpful I'm, i can already picture everybody's writing them down so t- have at it
1: okay cool um uh, next one i would say here and I, and I think this is a really important one here um how many times have we created a fire for ourselves by dealing with an emotional subject by email whether it's about you know i, I had one recently about a sales team member it was about compensation and whenever it's about money it's always emotional because money is a A shortcut for how someone feels that they are being respected and valued in an organization. I knew I shouldn't have done it by email. I did it. Why? Because I was just an idiot. (laughs) I was. I just wanted to get it checked off the box, and I. It caused a problem, and what it was was it made what should have been a 10-minute conversation that everyone would have been happy with, was an hour conversation that finally was okay, but it was painful and took a lot longer. Mm
0: -hmm. So if
1: it's an emotional subject, don't have email be how you deal with it it's perfectly okay to use the email to write up afterwards, but have it be a conversation,
0: Mm. pick up the phone. I I love this because I think a lot of people buy into the belief that um, they are being efficient by just like sending a message out and not scheduling the time to have a conversation. And they forget like with a lot of things that are more sensitive that you might end up spending a lot more time cleaning up messes over time as it relates to that quick need for efficiency um, versus what looks like the long route is setting aside the time to talk to them. So this is really exciting to me. That's great. And then
1: for those of your listeners that actually leverage an assistant, so I'm going to give them one more. So if you have an assistant or if you are the assistant, your boss is going to fall in love with you. If you do this one thing, which is it, I'm going to use it with outlook, Google, Gmail and the other main servers, email client servers, they do the same thing. They just call it differently. But in, 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 in outlook, they have this thing they call categories, and you can set up what are called quick steps. And a quick step is that when I, I click a button, the email, some series of rules happen. So for me, I've set up a several categories so that when I go through my inbox, I click on stuff that helps my assistant. So I have one that says assistant do. I have another one that says assistant add to contacts. Another one says assistant add to calendar. So I've got these categories like that. When I hit the quick step, it lets Emily, who is my assistant, So she knows, Oh, this is, you know, David's talking with Ashley. Mm -hmm. So this email should go in the appointment he's got with her on such and such date. And so she can just handle it. And what it does is I do that for about three or four months. And pretty soon Emily actually knows how to process 40 or 40% or more of my email, because over time, these quick step actions have trained her, what it is that I'm looking for her to do with 40% or more of my email. And it's just made life better. I mean, 40% less emails saved me probably about an hour, hour and 15 minutes a day. Wow. That's Um, so good. It's a gift.
0: Mm, I love this. Okay. And man, I could ask you about email forever. Like I thought that I was my own hero by putting a message that automatically goes out saying like, Hey, I check my emails on these dates and times. Um, Uh, I was like my own hero for that because honestly, I mean, but for me, but that's business, like as business owner, I could do that. It's like, I get that a lot of people in corporate can't like put an away message being like BRB, like no way, you know? So this is helpful. And what about meetings? This is, Yet another, what a lot of people feel like is a time suck. And I know that some meetings are necessary and productive and many of them are not. So what are some thoughts you have, especially for the person who has to go to meetings even if they don't want to?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I know how this feels. Number one, um, all of us have been in thousands of meetings in our business career, whether we run the meeting or we're just sitting in the meeting held captive. And uh, In the research, it was funny, for the research for the Freedom Formula, I I was coaching uh, um, the Senior Vice President for a a large Fortune 50 company that ran retail sales for North America for a particular product. Um, Not allowed to say what it was. Whenever I coach with large companies, generally speaking, there's pretty robust confidentiality requirements, but I can tell the story. Here's how they did meetings. It was the most idiotic thing I've ever heard, and yet I, I think it's going to resonate with all the U-turners because we've probably been forced to be in meetings that are at least not quite this bad. Mm-hmm. So they would send out these pre-reads so that everyone was prepared for the meeting. That that makes sense. But the pre-reads they'd send out would be over 30 pages long. Oh, my God. So they get to the meeting, and they would know that no one read it, or not everyone read it, so they would cover the same information, which basically meant in future the pre-reads were ridiculous. No one's going to actually go through it. And then they would have people there because they needed to be seen versus they were really people that should have been in the meeting. So they had too many people. So here's the first thing I would say. If you're the one running the meeting, I'll give you two quick ideas. And if you're the one sitting in the meeting, I'll give you a couple others. So if you're the one running the meeting, number one, meetings are exceptionally expensive in terms of time and attention. They're almost always going to be anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour or two, which means you're, you're taking not just the time, but you're taking a block of somebody's best time. And so I really need to make sure that every meeting has a purpose mm-hmm. and every meeting should have an agenda. Mm-hmm. And if a meeting matters at the end of the meeting, I need to have some kind of clear lines of action of who does what by when and how they're going to close the loop and tell other people about what they, they've accomplished. So if I'm on here and I'm not running the meeting, this is a, an advice to any u tuner here that want u Turner that wants to have a, just be seen as like, wow, She is on top of it. We should promote this person or keep an eye on her. She's going places. Here's a simple thing you can do. The next time you're in a meeting and people are going through, Joe does this, Cindy does that, uh, Carlos does this, um, uh, Linda does that, keep track of it. Right when the meeting's done, send out a quick recap. Because most times, most meetings, the people don't do this. It's ridiculous. They hold the meeting, but there's ambiguity of who says they're going to do what. But when it's done, just say, hey, just to make sure we have clear lines of communication so we accomplish all the things that we talked about in today's meeting, um, here's what we've agreed to do. You know, and list off, so-and-so agreed to do X and Y by these dates, and here's how she agreed to close the loop. And the sooner you send that out, the, the, the message is that in our company we get stuff done, I will tell you that I've, I've been in business now for 24 years. I've had one team member who ever did that without me explicitly asking her to do that, She started off as my personal assistant. She is now the COO of my company.
0: That's amazing. Her name is Teresa,
1: and and she just stood out. I mean, my gosh, how could I not see the fact that this person was incredibly capable? Look at how seriously she took about the execution of it. Mm. So simple, but no one does it. Mm -hmm. No one does it.
0: You know, I love this because I think so many people think that there is a ceiling to their income and that the person who gets chosen to go from the mailroom to the CEO is like some special luck circumstance when really there's a lot of money to be made in corporate if you're a top performer, you know, and it's, that's not the only metric of success, of course, but I know a lot of people in corporate feel like there's a ceiling on the vacations. They can take the income they can make. And it's so refreshing to me whenever I hear about somebody in corporate who takes initiative, takes leadership and really makes an impact. And some of the tips you're giving for this is, is are gold like you know just asking around to figure out where you're making your highest impact. I mean, whether you have a a, direct, a boss you report directly to or you have clients that are contacting you all day, it's like these sorts of email systems are are huge. So I really love what you're what you're sharing and I can't help but ask you, you know, as it relates to meetings. I mean, if you're somebody who is attending the meeting and you are just feeling like is there a boundary where you f- eventually speak up and say, "Look, I'm like a strap hanger." Like I feel like I used to work in counterterrorism and at the Pentagon, there was always, um, I was a defense contractor. So there would always be like a government rep that would come to our big meetings. And I always remember thinking like this government rep is like an appendix. Like there's absolutely no value they're bringing or taking from this meeting. This is an internal meeting on us executing on this project. So what are some thoughts for maybe the employee who's like, Hey, look, I'm a performer. I want to achieve, leave me alone. Do you know what I mean?
1: I do. I do. And and I'll give another example from it. Uh, We had, for a period of time, a guy was coaching, he ran for product development for a large consumer electronics company, and they they had some of the most expensive engineers in the world on their payroll. Um, And the way they did their accountability is they would get together once a week, have every one of the engineers, these are people who are making mid-six figures in this room, um, sequentially reporting on how they're doing on their status on their project development projects. It was just idiotic. Yet, his company, insisted on that because it gave certain authority, certain power was being held by the VPs and the executive VPs. So what do you do if you're in that situation? Number one, you identify what you can control and what you can't control. So first of all, some bosses really want you to make a big difference. Some bosses want the control. If you've got a control boss and what he or she is wanting is to have all the information tightly in their hands, tougher not to crack. But if you're lucky enough to have a boss that just wants to create great work that wants you to produce, go talk with her, you know, Erin, um, you know, right now I've been in these, these bi-weekly meetings with us here about this for the last three years. I'm going to tell you that in the last, you know, the last year, there have been three items that have shown to me and, and and that would have been important for me to know about, all of which though meant that I was spending, I spent a total of, you know, 80 hours in this meeting over the last year. Jeez. I really think that I could create more value for the organization focusing on x and y instead during that time. Would you be willing to have us try out for just a 30 day test where I will follow up with Susan. I'll sit down with her afterwards and see if she can bring me up to speed on anything I missed. But I'm going to use the meeting time that normally would take four hours this, this month, and I'm going to use it doing x and y instead. And then you and I can sit down and review it. If you think that that I created more value, you let me keep doing it. If you think I didn't create more value, then I'll go back to the old way. Would you be open to trying a 30-day experiment like that? First of all, no one in business, I've had, employ- I've had a lot of employees over the years, a lot of team members over the years. I've never had a team member come to me and say something like that. Had they done that, what I would have said, oh my gosh, this person's thinking like a business person. Mm. Absolutely, let's try it for 30 days. We have nothing to lose. And by the way, where else do you think that you could create more value that we're inadvertently putting obstacles in your way? I mean, it's... It's a person taking charge themselves in a way that's respectful, but it also makes me as a boss look good because I can get my same team to produce even more. That makes my life better. This is someone I can lean on. This is someone I can count on.
0: You know what also i think the nature of the business like are you working at a startup like i I think there's something around the culture and figuring out like what culture are you working with to be able to have these sorts of conversations but i love this idea of like hey let me try this on and get back to you on results that are going to add more value to you and i'll do it your way um no matter what if if you're not happy with this result really powerful and talk to me about managing people because I, ha- I hate to admit this, I know how, I understand what it takes, and I am such a solopreneur. I thrive without a team. I had 10 employees at one point, and I really, I love people, but I prefer to work alone. Um, yeah. and, and so I know that not everybody is born to be a manager, and it doesn't mean that they're not a great worker. So what are some tips that people can take away from listening to this to just do a better job at work in navigating the people that they work with? Yeah.
1: So I'm going to talk first to the person who's the manager, then I'll talk to the person who, who doesn't lead anybody else. And, you know, if I'm a manager, I have to ask myself, and, and in the book, we we gave the the first half of the book talks about how do I personally um, operationalize working smarter as an individual? And the second half of the Freedom Formula talks about how do I leverage my team to have our team, our, our, our team company division department work under these same principles, and so one of the big things I'm going to share two quick ideas for the manager. Number one, I, I ask somebody to do something, but oftentimes I, I manage all my people the same way, which is a real mistake. Instead, what I wanted to ask myself, if I'm going to hand something over to Julia, I just have to pause and I say, where is Julia on the spectrum of capability on a scale of one to 10, how experienced and skilled is she at this particular functional responsibility? If she's a one, two, or three, I manage her very differently than I manage someone who's a seven, eight, nine, or a 10. Mm. And and, and I, I've had this problem before. I've had people who really knew how to do a function. They were an eight and I managed them in a way that I would manage a person that was a two. And so they feel I was micromanaging mm. or the person who was a two, I dump it and they feel like, gosh, they've had no support, no training. They've been set up to fail. So I have to, just if I just pause for 30 seconds and ask that question, What it does is it primes me to realize that a person who's a seven, eight, nine, or a 10 needs a different leadership style from me than the person who's a 2 or 3. So that's one. Number two, this is my favorite. It was actually probably one of the most fun I had writing this in the book. Um, A friend of mine who runs an $80 million a year um, retail store, he's got nine locations, really nice man. Um, He shared this with me. He says, David, I call it can't do, won't do, don't know how. So if I'm a new manager... And someone I'm having trouble with, let's say, you know, Joe won't do X. Great. Is it because he can't do it? Like he's not capable of it. He won't do it. He's not willing to. It's an attitude issue. Or he just doesn't know how. It's a training issue. And what I've learned is when I've identified the problem as a can't do, then I have to ask, do we have a better role or for them to play? Otherwise, they're they're probably not right for that that slot. Hmm. If it's a won't do, I have a one serious heart-to-heart adult conversation. If it's still a won't-do, then they're gone. Why? Because I can't have the cancer of the attitude in the company. If it's a don't-know-how, and many times it really is just a don't-know-how, then I have to go back and say, well, how do I support this person with the right training, the right mentoring, the right coaching to help them be successful? So those are two quickies that I think are really useful for a manager.
0: Oh, I love that. So helpful. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because – I've had so many companies come to me and be like, hey, you know, our, we're having a hard time retaining millennials and Generation Z is coming as if it's like this impending doom potentially. And they're just like, how do we retain them? They keep leaving. And sometimes I can't help but think to myself, well, you might be the problem. How are you managing them? How are you talking to them? And it's like, I've learned how to manage people, even though it's not something that I prefer to do. And it's been so powerful to talk to them about the importance of just sitting down and really learning what somebody wants from their job. And to me, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking the ultimate shift that I've had with leadership is that when you're leading somebody, they don't work for you. You work for them like you work for them, you're learning, like, what do they need for them to shine so that this whole thing can shine. So really listening to you, I'm, I'm taking little notes as you're talking. And That's, then
1: what, what you team. said, Ashley is so dead on with that. So it's funny, I'm, I'm actually looking here. And so in chapter five of the book, we talk about engage your team. It's one of the accelerators to make this, this formula go faster. And on page 140, just jumps right out at me, what your team really wants. And, and I think most people what we, what we get mad at as we get older is we think, well, the generations are different. They're not. They're not that different. They're, they wanted the same things that we did. But we, we've in our career have kind of gotten jaded. And we think that it, what really matters to people is salary and title and status, because perhaps that matters to us more than it once upon a time did. but. In the book, we talk and they have this list What people really want is they want things like respect and autonomy and growth and connection and impact. And they do want money because that's a shortcut precursor to, to take care of economic needs and to see how they're being esteemed or valued in a marketplace. And they want some flexibility. And so I look at it like my company's small. You know, we've got roughly 40 team members. I, I can't do the benefits of of Google or Amazon. I can't do it. I can't compete on that. What can I do? I can give people a humane work style, right? I, I, can, I can be treating them as human beings so that when they have a daughter's um, athletic performance, like let's say she's playing soccer and they want to work around that in their schedule every third, uh, you know, once or twice a week during the soccer season for high school soccer, I'm like, yeah, unless there's a strong business reason why we can't, I'm not going to put up officious red tape in the way. I can give that to somebody by treating them as a human. And here's a simple exercise that uh, one of the stories we feature in the book chairs about, which is ask your team in the next meeting to take a sheet of paper out, write a, a line right down the vertical middle. On the left-hand side, have them write down all those things that they that were things that their worst bosses ever did, the things that they just hated about, their places of work that, that, that just they made no sense or the things that frustrated them. And then the right-hand side, have them write down the things that made them feel best, the things that their bosses did or their companies did that they really valued the things that their companies did that, that made them feel like I would I would go through fire for this company. And what's funny is you'll see a common thread through it. And what they've just done is they've given you a playbook that you can manage these people. Don't do the left-hand side and do the right-hand side. I mean, it's not rocket science here.
0: That's so wonderful. Okay, thank you. And and as far as the future goes, because, you know, we're talking about managing yourself, email, meetings, people, and then there's the future, I I've seen so many companies panic at the thought of it. I'm seeing moments where the future is leaking into the present. Um, you know, I was just uh, on travel and I went to go get my rental car and all there was was a little robot machine situation with no people there for me to like get my keys and. Uh, I was like, wow, the future is here. And, you know, I have friends who have self-driving cars coming here. And, you know, you have the rise of the freelancer. There's so many dynamics in tomorrow's world. I know that there is a real percent of the workforce that will be gone from robots. And it's not a bad thing. It's an exciting thing. And I know that a lot of people listening right now are like, how do I stay relevant? And to me, I could really simplify it and say, you stay relevant by working really hard, being a top performer, you know? Um, but what else would you say there is to managing the future?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to challenge one of the things you said there. First of all, I, I agree love with it. 99%. The one piece you said is you stay relevant by working hard. And, and that's what I'm going to challenge.
0: Yes. As let's go, do it. I love as a, a we challenge. Go, as we
1: go forward, the way that you stay relevant is you have to work more intelligently. Mm. And so like I, I can look at my company and there are people in my company that are journeymen and they work really hard. And you know what? Right now they there will be a place for them. They're B performers. They work hard. They're consistent. They have a great attitude, and I value that. Unfortunately, those are the people that automation and technology will replace. Because working hard without using your brain is fairly easy to replace over time, depending on the function. The people that I can see that have the brightest future are the A players. And they're not an A player because they work 90 hours a week and sacrifice everything. That's not true at all. The reason they're an A player is because they... They think like a business person and ask, what makes the most sense here? They look at things and say, hmm, out of the 90 things on my to-do list, these two actually matter most, so I'll give them a disproportionate amount of my best energy. Mm. My best energy is probably that first hour of the day versus the one at 4 o'clock after I've been burnt, I'm tired, and I'm fitting it in right before I try to rush off and get home for the day. And and so the one thing I would just share with your listeners here, any U-turner who's listening is please Ask yourself, am I really consistently investing my best energy, my best attention, not energy, my best attention on the things that truly create value? When I create some space, it's amazing what we do. Like, for example, Kim runs our marketing in my company. And recently I was talking with her. I said, Kim, you're incredible. You get through more of your to-do list than anyone I've ever seen. But because of that, what happens is you're treating our most valuable marketing priorities as another task to tick off. And as a result, you're underperforming what you could do. How can you carve out every Tuesday a a three-hour block to step away from marketing and actually just think, to look at your role and what you're doing and do the highest value stuff, but don't just get it done, take the task off. Spend the extra time to do the things that matter really well, and then you can rush through the rest. And she started doing that now for the last probably four weeks and uh, night and day. I, I just watched the growth for her from doing that simple thing. By doing that part, that's the hardest part to automate or to to turn into software. What that means is, for your listeners, that type of deeper thinking, that type of being able to proactively look to say, how do I create value creatively? That's what they do to, to keep themselves not just safe, but to help themselves thrive in the coming world without working nights, weekends, and while they're quote unquote on vacation.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's just so interesting to me when we think about the future and and this idea, like it's in my own conditioning. It's like um, when I was running my company with all of the employees, I thought like I really value the person who worked hard. So I think it's really good feedback from you. Like this is a mindset and it starts at the top, you know, and. Are there a couple skills that you see as particularly noticeable for the future outside like, yes, working smarter, but, you know, like, I'm aware that soft skills are really going to matter in the face of technology, like really being able to communicate well, navigate conflict, uh, emotional intelligence, what skills are you thinking will really matter uh, later for the future?
1: Yeah. So I'll I'll talk about it just for the business context. So two that come to mind for me, one is creativity. And most people think creativity is the fact that it's just that creative person. It's not. Creativity is both a muscle and it's actually a process. If I want to be creative, what creativity is, is combining known things in in new ways. So if I want to be creative, I mean, a a friend of mine who um, was one of the founders for Priceline.com, I actually wrote my last book with him. His name's Jeff Hoffman he calls it reading the world. And what he does is he he just looks at things, magazines, things in the world that are outside of his normal thing. He's got me reading like bridal magazines at times. Um, you know, why? Because I see things that I wouldn't normally see. Or I'll look at a, at, a, at a magazine, a science magazine that I wouldn't normally read. So I look at things I need new and novel inputs because I ask myself, how could I combine new and novel inputs in, in ways? That's what creativity is. That's a skill that's hard Uh, for automation to to take that on. Number two, um, I think putting on your business hat, this this sense of uh, this business intuition, which is nothing more than good judgment. And so I keep asking myself the question, if it were up to me, what would I decide? Why? If this were my business, how would I run it? Why? What would I stop doing? What do I see around here that we do that makes no sense? And I know that a lot of your listeners are working in places where they, they don't have the authority to do it. I get it. So even if you can't make the changes that you know are obvious, don't let that be jaded. Take that in and let that be where you can use it to train yourself to be a better business person. A person who can help make my company more profitable, more successful is always going to have a home for me. The person who just comes in and does a rote job again and again, unfortunately, they're not going to have a place with us for a long time.
0: Wonderful. This has been so helpful. I know everybody's probably going to want to go get a copy of the Freedom Formula and learn from you where else can everybody find you
1: yeah so they should take a look at uh, freedomtoolkit.com. so www.freedomtoolkit.com there are two resources that are on there the first is of course you can get the book there which will take you to amazon barnes and noble whatever bookstore you like to use the second one though is they can register there for a free toolkit and on the toolkit there there's a thing like for example we have a a, a 90-day curriculum that would be for a group of two people or 10 people to go through the book together. You watch a short video, seven to 10 minutes. You go to a one-page discussion guide for each of the the main chapters of the book, and it just paces you through it. And and you learn best with discussion and interaction with other people by engaging and really getting into the material. So that would be what I tell them at freedomtoolkit.com.
0: Thank you so much for your time and for being here.
1: Oh, pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ashley.
0: Hey friends, it's Ash here, and I really love this episode with David. I could tell that he was so professional, so aware of himself, and you know when you talk to certain people where you can tell that they've had the life experience to support what they're talking to you about? That was very much so my experience of David, and I couldn't help but think about after this episode when I told him that that question when I said, you know, other than working hard, what can people do to prepare for the future? And I love that he corrected me and said, well, you know, um, I'm going to correct you and disagree and challenge you and offer that it's not about working hard, it's about working smart. And I love that. And I know that there's a lot of companies that would really appreciate it if you started to embody more of an entrepreneurial mindset uh, about ROI at the company, like where their dollars are going, what's creating output. Um, what's creating input, where the results are. And I I know any CEO at any company is going to appreciate an employee who thinks in this way. I also know that top performers tend to get more done because they're working smarter. And as a result, they have extra free time. And what happens is that with that extra free time, people usually... You know, we live in a world where people would look at you if you had those three extra hours of the afternoon that they didn't and see you as lazy or not productive when really you're so productive that you create more time for yourself. So you're probably wondering, how do I start to work smarter Uh, And I wanted to offer you an exercise for this that I've often done with a lot of my business coaching clients that has proven to be really powerful in helping them take a look at where they're great. And I am a big believer that you should just up the volume on where you're amazing, uh, improve in the areas that you need to improve to continue to be amazing in other areas of your job, and then just really... Uh, focus otherwise as it relates to you know, letting go of the things you're not good at that you don't have to be doing because it's more true than I've ever seen it before that we are working on things and creating this energy of being busy when really we're not being productive and it's so important to be productive. So the exercise is this, grab a piece of paper, draw a cross through it so that you have four quadrants, four uh, squares open in the piece of paper and you want to have the first column that's good and the second column that's not good. And so the first square is going to be good at and like it. The second square is going to be good at and don't like it. The third square is going to be not good at but want to learn more or like it. And the fourth one is going to be saying not good at and don't like it. So when you look at what you're good at and that you like, that's your zone of genius. Usually those things that you're good at and you like, those are things that you can consider potentials for your zone of genius. The things that you are good at but you don't like, um, that's your zone of goodness. And that's the stickiest zone because usually the things that you're good at but don't necessarily love are the things that people will notice that you're good at. They'll ask you to do it, but it's that little thing that makes you less amazing um, or less happy at your job uh, than you could be because it's that area where you're great at something and you like it, that that's your zone of genius. Um, not good at and like, that's your personal development opportunity. Um, maybe, you know, for me, I'm not good at detail-oriented things, Um, but I like like learning them. Um, Also reading, I'm not really a fast reader, but I really like reading. So that goes into my box of not good at but like. Um, That's the area of opportunity where you can look at a few things on there and say, what is really gonna move the needle for me if I start focusing on these things? And then of course there's the final quadrant, not good at, don't like. If you have too much of your job in this quadrant, you are simply in the wrong job for you. Um, But if you can take a look at this quadrant and think about all the things that you don't think you're good at and that you don't like doing at all and just listing the things that you are doing in your life, uh, ask yourself, what can you remove from this list? Is there anything on there that is keeping you busy? For the sake of it, is there anything on there that you have an assistant at work that you could delegate to or that in your annual review, you could talk to your boss about your strengths and what you're great at versus what you're not? These are the most powerful conversations I think you can be having uh, with your managers depending on your rapport. So there's so much more that I could say about how to work smart, but I think I want to leave you here. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Those of you who are reviewing it, sharing it with friends, it means so much. I would love to hear from you on Instagram. Let me know if there's a topic you want me to cover at Ashley Stall. And I wish you a beautiful day.